Please grab your seats. You can open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 5. We'll be starting in verse 1. As you do that, let me pray. Father, we thank you that we can come here, that we can worship your name, God, that as we look ahead to a new year, that we can know you are in control, that we can know that we will still be worshiping you, that we will still be praising you all of our days, God, and that you will return and bring us home one day. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. And as we open up your word today, we pray that you would guide us through it and speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me read through the passage just as we start here today. Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young man came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Coming out of Christmas, I'm sure we all have different memories, different uh, parts of the holidays that we enjoyed more than others. Maybe some of us uh, really liked decorating and we were very happy to set our houses up. Some of us maybe liked the act of of, uh, the meal, the turkey, the stuffing, whatever it is. For me, one of the things that I like about Christmas time are the Christmas songs. And there's always been one line in a specific song that I've always found extra amusing. Uh, It's from, it's the most wonderful time of the year. Many of you probably know this. You've probably heard it too many times this year. Uh, But in that song, uh, you find these lines. There'll be parties for hosting, marshmallows for toasting, and caroling out in the snow. If I was Paul, I would sing, but I'm not. There'll be scary ghost stories and tales of the glories of Christmases long, long ago. And I feel like most of us who've heard that song at some point saw that line, there'll be scary ghost stories, and thought, wrong holiday, dude. Uh, It doesn't seem like something very Christmassy to get together and tell ghost stories. But that's because we don't live in Victorian England. Telling ghost stories is actually a very old Christmas tradition. It's something that would happen every Christmas Eve. In fact, one of the most popular Christmas stories is a ghost story. 
Charles Dickens' A Christmas Story. And if you were here a couple of weeks ago when, when Paul was preaching on the passage before this, you would have heard Paul talk about that story a little bit. In fact, that story is attributed with saving Christmas in England as uh, Oliver Cromwell tried to crush it. But it's a ghost story. It was something that people did on Christmas Eve all of the time. And there's different reasons why this was a tradition. The Smithsonian Magazine will talk about how the, the pagan cultures kind of lingered around Christmas as they began to celebrate Christmas on December 25th. And some of the aspects of their traditions kind of stuck around in what Christians were doing. Some of the factors might be the fact that that is the darkest time of the year. It's when the sun is down the longest, right around that time of December. And so naturally, it lends itself to spooky stories. Another factor that gets pointed out is there just was no TV, and what else are you going to do other than tell Christmas stories? I mean, ghost stories. I guess they were Christmas stories then, too. But for whatever the reason, part of Christmas traditions in the past was telling ghost stories. And they would use these stories to teach morals. All of these spooky stories had a purpose. They were used to uh, teach people the dangers of talking to strangers and wandering in the woods, the dangers of not listening to your parents, to to warn of the dangers of, of selfishness and greed. And they all had a purpose. But not only did they warn people about the dangers of their behaviors, they were also used to point to the good news. G.K. Chesterton, when he talks about fairy tales, and he's talking about real fairy tales here, not the Disney ones, but the fairy tales where the heads roll and the toes get chopped off and all the the creepy fairy tales. He says this about fairy tales. Fairy tales do uh, do not tell children that dragons exist. Children already know that dragons exist. Fairy tales tell children the dragons can be killed. See, in, in the ghost stories, in the spooky stories of old, there was always a good ending. Good always triumphed over evil. And so these stories were used to create a sense of fear, to make people aware of the dangers, but also to point to the fact that good will win. And as we look at Acts chapter 5, God has preserved a story for us, an account of a historical event that at the time struck fear in the lives of those who were living around the people. And as we read this passage today, this passage should strike fear into our lives as well. As God reveals through the writings of Luke here, the dangers of our actions, the dangers of our behavior, the dangers of our character, but also the good news that God will win. And so as we read through this account, we can know that God has a purpose for this story. We're not just gathered here on the first weekend of the year, right after Christmas, reading one of the most depressing stories in the New Testament for no reason. There is a purpose to this story. There is beauty in this passage. So as we go through it, let's see how God unfolds what happened here. Starting in verse 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. To understand what is going on here, we actually do need to go back to chapter 4 for a moment 
Anytime we start a passage with but, we need to know what that but is there for. And so if we go back to Acts chapter 4, and I'll have it on the screen for you, starting in verse 34, this is what we see. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And so what we see in the beginning of our passage, what we are being warned of is the danger of a self-centered heart. You see, Ananias and Sapphira watched what Barnabas did, saw the attention that he got, saw the praise that he got for being generous, saw the thanks that Barnabas was given, and they decided they wanted that for themselves. The only issue is they didn't have the same heart that Barnabas had. They wanted that praise. They wanted that attention. They wanted that glory, but they didn't want to make the sacrifice that Barnabas made. Instead, they decided, well, if we sell our property... And we give a certain amount to the apostles and just tell them that that's everything we have, they'll never know that we're keeping most of it for ourselves. And then we can do whatever we want with the, the, the money that we've made from selling our land. We can stay in control of our money. We can still dictate what we do, but pretend that we're being generous People are going to be helped, we're going to be thanked, we get to buy whatever we want, everybody wins. But what you see is the issue here is that they are so focused on themselves, that there is a danger of their self-centeredness here. In Greek mythology, there's a story of a man named Narcissus. And Narcissus fell in love with his own beauty. He was so handsome that he couldn't take his eyes off of himself. And the story of Narcissus ends, depending on the version that you read, with him seeing his reflection in a pool of water, being so enthralled with the the beauty of the man that he is looking at that he cannot take his eyes off of himself. He forgets to eat, he forgets to move, he forgets to do anything, and he just withers and dies because he cannot take his eyes off of his own beauty. That self-centeredness that Narcissus had led to his destruction. And it's the same for Ananias and Sapphira here. They're so focused on themselves and what they want. They want the praise, but they want the money. They want the acknowledgement from the people that they are doing well. They want the acknowledgement from the religious leaders in their Christian community that they've done the right thing while also being able to be selfish and do whatever they want with their money. They want to have control. They want to do what their heart tells them they should do, and it's going to lead to their destruction. And it's a warning for all of us of how easy it is to fall into that state of self-centeredness. 
to take our eyes off of Christ, to take our eyes off of the needs of people around us and focus on ourselves. And as we do that, we start to focus more and more on what we want and less and less on what God has called us to. And the sin that we fall in begins to grow and grow and grow. This started off as an idea between two people. And because they couldn't look past themselves, they couldn't see how deceitful it was, how destructive it was. And that idea turned into an action, and that action turned into disaster. When we take our eyes off Christ, and we only worry about our own hearts, instead of getting what we want... We get destruction. We get chaos. Let's continue on and we'll see what happens. Starting in verse 3 here. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? I'm going to stop there for a second, and I, I want to point out something here. Sometimes we, when we read through Acts, we get a little bit confused. This whole idea of, of selling off possessions and bringing it and laying at the feet of the apostles, uh, everybody sharing all that they had, it wasn't mandatory, it wasn't required. It wasn't something that was ordered. It was something that happened because of the work of God's heart in the people. Peter's very clearly saying here, why did you do this? If you wanted the money or the property, just, you could have just kept using it. You didn't have to make this whole fake gesture. It was yours. God gave it to you. If you wanted to waste it, go ahead and waste it. Sometimes we think that it was a requirement for everybody to come and sell off everything they had, but it wasn't. It was the work of the Spirit. As people saw the generosity of God in their lives, as they start to, started to see the mercy and the grace that God had given to them, they cared for each other the way that God cared for them. And so Peter is saying here to Ananias, why did you do this? It doesn't make any sense. Why would you lie like this? He goes on and he says, Why is it you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to, to man, but to God. What we see here is the danger of deceit now. As we continue to read the story of Ananias and Sapphira, God is warning us of the, of the danger of deception, the danger of these lies. Ananias and Sapphira come up with this scheme. The issue is they don't just lie. They lie about who they are. They're not lying to man but to God. They lie about the way the Holy Spirit is leading them. They make it seem like God has led them to be generous like Barnabas, that God has led them to sell their land to take care of those around them, but really they sold their land so that they could use the money for themselves and gave a part of it so that they don't look selfish. They're lying about the work that God is doing in their lives. And that lie, that deception, is a danger not just to them, but to the whole community. F.F. F. Bruce, in his commentary, he writes this, 
Ananias, in the effort to gain a reputation for greater generosity than he actually deserved, tried to deceive the believing community. But in trying to deceive the community, he was really trying to deceive the Holy Spirit, whose life-giving power had created the community and maintained it in being. God has established his people. He has saved a community. He has saved a group of people who are loving each other, who are loving God, who are worshiping and praising God every day, who are caring for the needs of the people around them. He has the apostles going around bringing healing to people to show the glory of God. Through this community, God is revealing himself to all of the non-believers around them. As people see the generosity of Christians, they see the love of God. As they see Christians laying their possessions at the feet of the apostles, and the apostles making sure that people are cared for, they're seeing the care that God has for his creation, for his people. And in the midst of that, sprout up Ananias and Sapphira. And their deceit, and their greed, and their self-centeredness. And as people see them, what they would see is not the people of God. No, Peter says they're being tempted by the devil. Now, I want to be clear here. Peter makes sure that the onus is on Ananias and Sapphira. They are at fault for what they've done. But he asks them, why did you let the devil tempt you? Why did you give in to this? Why did you give your heart to him instead of to God? As people from the outside, if they were to see Ananias and Sapphira's actions, they wouldn't see God, they would see the enemy. And the idea of who God is would be corrupted, marred, destroyed a little bit. And so in their lie to God about who they are, they are tainting everything that God is doing. They are getting in the way of God's redeeming plan for the people. And God will not stand for it. When, when Don Carson preaches about this passage, and you can find a sermon that he does on it uh, on the Gospel Coalition website, it's a wonderful sermon. Um, he talks about this idea of the lie that Ananias and Sapphira make, this idea of lying to the Holy Spirit. And he says this about that. I don't have the quote up here for it. Uh, He says, they want a reputation for love rather than loving sacrificially. And then he goes on to say these words. They pretended to be transformed when they weren't transformed. They claimed to have the Spirit when the Spirit wasn't in them. They claimed to be a part of the New Covenant when they weren't a part of the New Covenant community. They claimed to have life when the true life wasn't in them. And so it's taken from them. They've not just lied about the possessions they've brought forward. They've not just lied about what they've done. They've lied about who they are. They've lied about following God. They've lied about being marked as people of the new covenant. They are pretending to be people of the Holy Spirit who are led by their own selfish desires as they follow the temptations of the devil rather than actually allowing the Holy Spirit to take root in their hearts 
and following God as he sanctifies them. They're not just lying about what they've done. They're not just lying to to people. They're lying to themselves. They're lying to God. They're lying about their relationship with God and what is their actual motivation. And this is why we get the punishment that we see starting in verse 5. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young man rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. One thing to note here, just before we go into the next point, is the burial process here. Burials were significant in uh, the ancient world, in, in the Jewish context, and even the pagan context and Gentiles as well. But what you have here is actually very, very strange. Uh, Ananias is struck down for what he's done. And these men come and they gather him out and they take him and they bury him. There's no community involved They don't even tell his wife what's happening. When she shows up to see Peter, she has no idea. And for a a culture where family is so important, we need to stop and, and wonder why that is. And this shows us that without a shadow of a doubt, the understanding of the community at this time is that God has acted against Ananias. And he's acted against Sapphira. This is a judgment of heaven coming down. A burial that is this quick in that culture where there's no family involved means that these people are being treated as somebody who's been struck down by God and contaminated by their sin. They are removed from the community as fast as possible and buried. This is an indication that everybody understands this is God at work here. And the same thing happens to Sapphira. And so what's the point of this punishment? This is a passage that many people struggle with, especially coming from the New Testament. What we see here is it's actually the miracle of Ananias and Sapphira. This is a miracle. And I know that's weird to think of because when we think miracle, we always think of the nice ones, right? The, the parting of the Red Sea as God freezes people, right? Uh, God bringing victory in, in a completely what seemed like helpless situation. We think of healing. We think of, of people raising from the dead. But I want you to know, this is what C.S. Lewis says about miracles. He says, I use the word miracle to mean an interference with nature by supernatural power. What he's saying there is a miracle is an act of God. God does something that couldn't happen without his power, without his stepping into that moment. That is what a miracle is. And if we're willing to accept the fact that Lazarus coming back to life is a miracle, that God bringing life where there is death is a miracle, then when we look at what Ananias and Sapphira are, 
when we see God bringing death where there's life, we still see God exerting his power over life and death. This is still an act of God. This is not, some people read this passage and say, oh, Ananias felt really guilty and died. No, this is God acting. This is an act of God. But what we need to understand about miracles is they also always have a purpose. Timothy Keller writes this about miracles. His miracles are not just proofs that he has power, but also wonderful foretastes of what he is going to do with that power. Jesus' miracles are not just a challenge to our minds, but a promise to our hearts that the world we all want is coming. A miracle isn't just a powerful act of God. It's a powerful act of God that reveals something about his character, that shows his kingdom, that reveals himself to us. Martin Luther writes this about miracles. He nonetheless wanted people to look more at the word than at the signs, which were intended to serve as a testimony to the word. For it is Uh, For it was not his main purpose to give this sick person bodily aid. It was his most important office to direct people to the word. Miracles are meant to reveal God. Greg Morris, one more quote for you. Greg Morris writes this. His wonders, signs, and mighty works bid his hearers to sit eagerly and take notes. When we look at the story of Ananias and Sapphira, what we see is an act of God to reveal a greater truth, to reveal who he is and what his kingdom is going to be like. When we look at the miracle of Ananias and Sapphira, we see two things that we need to be aware of. First, sin will destroy you. Now, it might not happen immediately like it does for Ananias and Sapphira, although when you read through the letters of Paul, he does warn people that that still happens. It is something to be aware of, that we must be incredibly cautious with our sin. We cannot let it take over because it will destroy you. Maybe right now, but if not right now, it will destroy you in the long run. And it will be a painful process. If you let sin start to take over your heart, if you start to leave sin unchecked in your life, it will slowly drain the person God created you to be out of you. You will start to focus more on your sin and yourself than your relationship with God and your relationship with people. You will start to try to cling to the fleeting moments of satisfaction you get while getting increased lengths of guilt and suffering. The shame that comes with it will weigh you down and eat away at you until you are left just cringing at what you've let yourself become. And ultimately, sin will interfere in your relationship with God. It will destroy the connections that you have, and if you let sin take over completely, then there won't be anything left of your relationship with God. What you see here in the miracle of Ananias and Sapphira is they let their heart get so 
taken astray by the devil, so taken astray, astray by their self-centeredness, by their deceit, by their desires for themselves, that they don't think about God at all. And then they are removed from his community. Now, I believe that we are saved by faith alone in Christ, that it's only through the work that he's done on the cross and his resurrection that we are saved, and that is what we cling to. But don't let sin get in the way of your relationship with God. Don't let sin get in the way of you living the life God has called you to, because sin is destructive. It destroys your relationships, and it will destroy your life, and it will destroy your relationship with God. But the second thing we see here, the beauty in this passage, is that what God is revealing to us is that he is holy. That there is no place for sin in his presence. There's no place for sin in his community. There's no place for sin in his kingdom. Sin cannot stand in the presence of a holy, perfect God. And this is beautiful because God is showing us that if you believe in him, if you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you are welcomed into the kingdom of God because of your faith and what Christ has done, then you get to spend eternity with a holy God and a holy kingdom. God is showing us that there is no deceit in his kingdom, no corruption, no abuse, no decay, no selfishness, no loneliness, no violence, no greed, no sin. That stuff will be removed from God's presence and all that is left are the people who he has sanctified to be in a holy relationship with a holy God and a holy kingdom. All that's left is an eternity of perfection with God our creator and our Lord and Savior. That this miracle isn't meant to just be a warning that if you do what Ananias and Sapphira did, then you're going to have the same outcome. No, this was a sign to show God's holiness, to tell his people that there is a time coming when sin will not be tolerated, where sin will not be around, where sin will be completely and utterly destroyed. And all that's left is your perfect holy God waiting for you. And that is made available through Christ. And the people at the time understood this. Look at the last verse of the passage. Verse 11. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. That fear wasn't just a fear that God is going to go around throwing lightning bolts, killing people at will. That fear is the fear of the church. What's interesting about this passage is the word church shows up for the first time in Acts here, in this story, at the end of it. At the end of this lesson, at the end of this sign of God, for the first time we get the word church. For the first time, we're starting to see the community that God is building. For the first time, we're starting to see God leading his people together as they uh, represent God to one another, but represent God to the rest of the world. And that relationship, that image that they have, that, that connection they have with one another and with God, part of what God is saying here through this miracle is don't forget who I am. Don't forget that I am a holy God. Don't forget that you are representing me. 
This is a fear that's in, in awe of who God is, a reminder that they have been called to be the community of God, that they have been called as followers of Christ to continue the work that Christ has done, to continue bringing peace and grace, to continue bringing forth the kingdom of God. And in order to do that, they need to continue to leave their sin behind. In this act, God reminds them what he is about, what his community is about, and who his followers are to be. And I think the reason that everybody feared, the reason that there was a great fear as they heard the account of what happened to Ananias and Sapphira is that the community knew Ananias and Sapphira weren't the only sinners in the community. If the purpose of the act was to show people that sin will lead to destruction and God is holy, then that made people stop and look at their own lives. That made people stop and think and say, if I've been saved by the sacrifice that God has made, if I've been called by him to experience true life, then what does my life actually look like? What am I hiding like Ananias and Sapphira were hiding? Where is the sin in my life? Where is the deceit in my life? What are the areas in my life that are leading me to destruction, that are separating me and hindering my relationship with God? What are the areas in my life that I am selfishly holding on to? What are the areas in my life that are preventing me from being a part of this beautiful community in the fullest expression that I can? People started to fear because they knew that they needed God's grace and mercy just as much as everybody else around them. And if we sit here and read this story and think this is about people who sold property and then were a bunch of cheapskates and hid some of it for themselves, we're missing the point. Because just like the stories that were told on Christmas Eve's long, long time ago, this account of what happened in the world should strike us with fear as we remember who God is, as we remember who we are. We cannot take the life God has given us lightly. We cannot take the responsibility as Christ followers lightly. We cannot deceive God about whether or not we're following him completely. He knew what Ananias and Sapphira were doing. He knew their hearts, and he knows ours as well. And the beauty of this, and I'm going to invite the band to come up now, the beauty of this passage is that even though God knows our hearts, even though God knows we are sinners and we are corrupted and we are selfish and we are deceitful, he sent his son to save us. Ananias and Sapphira's story didn't need to end the way it did, and ours doesn't need to end the way their story ends either. The beauty of this story, the beauty of this passage, the good news that we have as we read through Scripture is that we can bring our sin to Christ and give it to him because he took it from us on the cross. 
that on the cross, Jesus faced death so that we could have his true life. That on the cross, Jesus faced the wrath of God so that we could have God's peace and love and mercy. That we can bring our sin, our shame, our guilt, and lay it at the feet of Christ and take up the life that he has given for us. And that's what we're going to spend time doing right now. As the, the band leads us and continues to lead us in worship now, we're going to spend some time in prayer. We're going to spend some time in confession. And I want each of us in this room, myself included, to spend this time in prayer with God, asking him to reveal the areas of our lives that we've been holding back from him, asking him to reveal the areas in our lives that have gotten in the way of our relationship with him, asking him to reveal the areas of our lives that are full of hypocrisy and deceit and self-centeredness, the areas that we have refused to give to him. And we're going to confess those to God. We're going to bring them to Christ, and we're going to thank him for the mercy he's given us on the cross. Thank him that we are not defined by the sin that we have, but we're defined by the love that's displayed for us on the cross. So as we sing these songs, be in prayer and know that you can bring your sin to Christ who died so that you could live, who gave up his life so that you could have the spirit and follow God. Let's continue to worship together.